Well, I brought this up, but I won't be using it. Um, I've been told that it's going to muffle what I have to say, and there's someone who mentioned this morning that it might be good to have it just in case there's some parts of the message I didn't, well, I didn't prepare very well. Um, believe it or not, we're actually going to be reading a whole book of the Bible uh, today. And that probably sounds a little more daunting than it really is. Um, it may take a little less long than you might think. We're going to turn to the book of 3 John. And we're going to hardly be budging from that book. So open your Bibles and you can just park in that one spot. Let's start off with a word of prayer before we get going. Lord, we're thankful that uh, those of us who can gather, have gathered. Um, We know that our relationships, that the love shared between us, the truth shared between us, is the lifeblood of of your body, of the church. And God, we pray that we can recognize that in Scripture and that we can see that in our own lives. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for the the love and the relationships among us, and we pray that they continue to thrive. Uh, Lord, we put this message in your hands, we put this service in your hands, and we know that... uh, your guidance will be with us, and we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So, as we read this book, really a, a letter that was written to an individual, um, we're, it, it's going to be uh, not a letter to us. It's not addressed to us. But as Jesus often said, I think it applies here, he who has ears, let him hear. I'm going to start in verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, behold, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And also add, we also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon. We will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. So if there was a, a competition for shortest book of the Bible, it wouldn't be a dead heat, but it'd be pretty close. Second John weighs in at 245 words. And this one here weighs in, 3 John weighs in at 219 words. Each letter would have been written on a single sheet of papyrus. It would have been very, very short. And if you compare them with some of the other letters in the New Testament, think of Romans. Well, this is just tiny. It's a letter, I've never, I've never written a letter where I felt that someday there would be a, a, a strong need 
to divide it up into chapters. That's not the case with 3 John. There's no such need. The reason that so many of the letters of the New Testament were so long is simple. It relates to the fact that they weren't just relating current events, what's going on in my life. These letters were meant to replace their presence in the city or with the person that they were writing to. It was their teaching. It was their correction, their encouragement, their deepest reflections on Christ. That's what they were sharing. But with Second and Third John, you can say it's more like a, a quick text than a true a New Testament letter in some ways. Now, that's not because the author has very little to say. Uh, it's the same author who writes the book of First John, and that's quite a bit longer. In fact, you can almost use it as a commentary to 2 John and 3 John. It gives us that deep background for these letters, helps us to understand them better. 3 John is one of those few letters in the Bible that are dealing with one situation written to one guy. There's always a danger when it comes to studying such a book. Maybe you don't see yourself in that guy's situation. Uh, Maybe you aren't like uh, with Paul's letters to Timothy. Maybe you aren't like Timothy. You're not a young leader who's trying to oversee a large church. Maybe with Philemon, you're not like like Philemon. You're not a a slave owner with a runaway slave. These are situations we can't find ourselves fitting into these shoes. But as we look at Gaius, the recipient of this letter, we need to find ourselves in any way that we can in his shoes. We need to enter into Scripture. Yes, it's from John to Gaius, but if it's found in Scripture, it's also from God to us. And uh, it speaks of two keys in the Christian life, of welcome and of witness. And it also speaks of two men who have very different ideas on those two keys, Diotrephes and Gaius. Now, in letters back then, you didn't have to wait all the way to the end of the letter to figure out who's writing to you. No, it's right there at the beginning. That's where the handshake happens. We get the introduction of the person who's writing the letter. We get to find out who they're writing to. So Gaius is going to be the recipient of this letter. And uh, we're going to also see the one writing the letter is someone who calls himself the elder, uh, traditionally considered to be the apostle or the elder John. And he's writing this brief letter of encouragement and direction. Just like in 2 John, he calls himself not an elder, but the elder. Now, that that sounds a little much, but John, after all, had been there from the beginning. He'd been with Jesus, and he was one of the few remaining witnesses to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And just like in English, the word elder has a double meaning. It, It can often be a role, but it can also be just old man. He's calling himself the old man. And he clearly is someone who's well-known to them. He, he knew Jesus and loved him and was loved by him. And he spent a very long life gushing about that love and what it means to him and what it means to all believers. Now, John doesn't give himself a, a string of title. He moves straight to Gaius, and we'll do the same. Um, he turns to the one who's reading this letter. Now, we don't know Gaius. It's not that we won't find his name elsewhere in the New Testament. We will. It's that we'll find his name everywhere. It was an incredibly common name at that time. Some of the older commentaries try to link Gaius with a disciple that we find in Acts 19 or in some of the letters of Paul. 
But the name Gaius or Caius, it was about as common as you could get. If, if when I was in elementary school, if someone shouted my name, they, they said, Brendan, I would look up. They were probably trying to get my attention, likely because I just scored on the wrong goal. Or they were trying to get the attention of the one other guy in the school who was named Brendan and spelt his name all wrong. Now, it was, it was rare enough as a name, and this was the reason, but if you were Gaius or Caius, and you were in a crowd at Ephesus, and someone shouted it out, you wouldn't even bother raising your head. There were 15 other guys with that same name. So we don't know him, or we likely don't know him. But thanks to John, we get to know him. And what we get to know is good stuff. It's encouraging. John is filled with goodwill towards Gaius. His desire is to see him in health, to see him prosper. To prosper, to have prosperity, is a word in English that often carries a sense of physical richness. We immediately picture uh, a lottery ticket and a large four-foot-wide check. That's not what's meant by prosperity. At its origin, it meant to go along a good road, to start your journey well, which gave way to a sense of to succeed, to thrive in whatever you set your hand to. This is something that John wants for this man. This is something that he wants to see in the life of Gaius. John is encouraged about his spiritual health. He sees it in the fruit in his life. It's obvious to him. But we can see right from the beginning, right from the start of this letter, that he's also concerned about the physical health and the success, the thriving of Gaius. He knows that Gaius is actively helping strangers, missionaries who are coming through town. They're staying at his house, and he's taking care of them, and he's sending them off on a good path. Well, he wants Gaius also to be on that same good path. He wants them to thrive. We're not more spiritual because we're so concerned with each other's souls that we never have a thought for each other's health, for each other's success. What John sincerely hopes for Gaius, in Christ, we should hope for each other. Though where physical well-being or success is linked to spiritual anemia, and that can happen, well, we, ha we can't be confused about what's more important. John isn't just wishing him in an offhanded way, success and health. It's not just a greeting. He's got motives. He has something to ask him something important. He's going to demand something of him, make a request that's going to cause increased conflict, it's going to cause turbulence in this man's life. See, he lived in a bit of a strange time. Many of the churches sprinkled throughout the eastern Mediterranean, they were a little immature. You had what you would call not so deep a roster. There weren't necessarily a lot of teachers. They were going back one or two generations, and they were going only back a few decades, these churches, um, sometimes only a few years. The Christians in them were starving for spiritual food, as should we all. They were starving for teachers, for those who had maybe known Jesus or had met those who had known Jesus, for, for experienced leaders who could push back on some of the heretical ideas that were coming in like docetism or Gnosticism. They wanted people who could help them to understand Old Testament scriptures, people who had lived, been brought up as Jews and could speak to the presence of Christ in the Old Testament. That's what they needed. Now, they had some resources, 
They may, may have had a collection of Old Testament prophecies or maybe a, a copied collection of the letters of Paul or the book of Matthew, which was very popular in the early church. But they would rely on these traveling teachers, traveling missionaries, people who knew in depth Scripture and understood the importance of Christ. And they would depend on them. Missionaries, evangelists, coming from the outside through town. Much like Paul, the early church had this regular flow of teachers. And it was constantly passing all through the Mediterranean, all the way around. They were bringing prophecy. They were bringing encouragement. They were copying and passing letters to each other. This was a constant flow. You could almost say that the early church was just this beehive of activity. There wasn't much structure. They weren't that organized. But because there were these constant relations, these constant interactions, they were building this sense of unity in spite of that lack of organization, which is something incredible. Forget the beehive. They were like a vine. And this is the image that John himself uses uh, through the words of Jesus in in, uh, John chapter 15. There was a constant flow of sap through all the vine into each of the limbs, the twigs, the grapes, every part of it thrived only because there was this flow of mercy and grace and relationship through the church. Now, there was a flow, but for that flow to continue, your door needed to be open. That was necessary. You will see Gaius' door was open in spite of the, the social danger to himself through Diotrephes. And the door of Diotrephes, it was not open. Gaius' house was a hub of activity. John is asking him to redouble his efforts. Of course, we're in a time when we can't live that way. So we have to, just for now, look at their situation. Um, He says in in verse 5, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for those brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner that is worthy of God. For they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. He He lived in a time when hospitality was king, when it was deeply important. Uh, when the church was divided into households, when those who had a big enough living space would be constantly using it for these shared worship services, for times of prayer, for fellowship with other believers. The dust from the streets would flow steadily into the atrium of the house, into the center of the house, and would have to be swept right back out again. And it was a constant flow because there was the constant tramp of feet. When the church was healthy... People were sharing the burdens. No matter the size of your house, the size of your living space, they were sharing time with each other. And they were, tra- they were housing and feeding traveling Christians. They would come with these letters of introduction from their home churches, and they would just, and here's the thing, they would just show up. Now, we often get at least a text before someone just shows up, don't we? Not many of us would be happy with this arrangement. Not many of us would rejoice to see someone who's about to see our living room or our kitchen. You'd have to figure it out. Forget the cleaning. That ship has sailed. They're standing at the door. 
Where will he stay? Do we have enough food? Does he need clothes so that we can send him safely on his way to the next part of the journey? Many of us feel sure that before someone passes the threshold of our house, we need hours with a vacuum, with dish gloves, and with totally motionless kids. That's the only way we're going to get our house clean. Our, our pride demands it. We like to be prepared. Of course, that wasn't the consideration back at that time. For them, what was being shared was not a beautiful leather couch. What was being shared was fellowship. And what was being shared was the hospitality taking care of each other with whatever was in the pantry. We're often selfish with our time, with our living space, with our stuff. Don't touch my stuff. And sometimes I feel that. It's such a contrast from when I lived in an apartment with other Christians uh, a long time ago when I didn't have much stuff. There wasn't much to clean. There wasn't much to impress people with. Uh, I would just, people would, other Christians would just barge into my room without being really invited, without knocking. And in fact, we even left the front door to our apartment open so that the Christian household down the street could just walk in, and boy, did they walk in. They didn't knock. As they walked in, they shouted, and they didn't even break stride. They would just walk straight through and usually head for the kitchen. It's good training. It was very good training. But I don't feel so good about that arrangement now. And of course, this is a time when none of us feel good about that arrangement, given the situation, given the spread of the virus. But the default setting for our church has to have a degree of openness. And that's something that we see in the New Testament. That's something that I experienced and that was a great joy, a great blessing for me. In some ways, men like Gaius had a lot of training from the world around him, for once, in a good way. Back then, hospitality was actually a sacred duty. Strangers were said to be protected by Zeus the god of, of, of strangers. Um, there was a system of guest friendship, so you could travel through cities using this network of available homes. It was a bit like Airbnb, only the owner of the house never leaves, and you never pay them. But there was this system of houses, and you could travel safely, and you sort of had to. There weren't many options. There were inns back then, but let me tell you about those inns. I don't know if you've stayed at a hotel lately. Hotels, for the most part, are spectacularly the same. Spectacularly the same. No matter what, you have that bed, you have a small table with a fake leather chair, you have a menu and a tourist guide on that table, and you have a TV facing the bed. And then behind you, of course, let's not forget this, you have a painting that you will look at once and immediately forget forever. That's what hotels were like. They're fairly safe, there's not a lot of vermin, but back then, Lay down your mat and watch for the rats. They were not good places to be. They were not good places to go. Not only that, they were, not only were they vermin-infested dumps, but they often doubled as, I'll use an old-fashioned term, as houses of ill repute. They were not good places to be. They were not places you wanted to hang out. If you were a Christian, it was the house of a stranger who shared your faith in the resurrected Lord, or it was curled up in a field your choice. Christians relied on Christians. That was how they lived. They, they relied on each other constantly, repeatedly. They needed each other for teaching, for guidance, for, for food, for housing. They needed each other 
to share in a love that went beyond race, background, wealth. The reason for being independent, for being self-sufficient, is made clear in the Bible. It's the same reason that Paul made and sold tents while he was on his missionary journeys. The idea was so that you could be leaned on, so that you could be relied on, so that you could be that house with an open door. That flow of Christians through the open door wasn't just a burden, it was a source of refreshment. I've, sp- I've spoken to some people in the, in the church who have um, kind of an Im- incredible background. They were brought up in houses which were often stopping grounds for missionaries who were passing through. They would stay overnight and they'd be on their way. I've always found that to be incredible. I think if you speak with them, they aren't going to say that they found that to be a great burden, a great trial. No, it was a source of refreshment and joy to have the faith of others flowing through their front door to have their space being shared by men and women of God. And can you imagine some of the conversations that happen with missionaries and their traveling, and, and the, the traveling, uh, and the hosts? Uh, one of the famous meetings was between Paul and Peter. Paul was stopping through Jerusalem. He needed a place to stay. He stayed at Peter's house for 15 days. I think I've mentioned this before, but it's been famously said that they probably didn't spend 15 days talking about the weather. What would you do if you spent that time with someone who had that experience, who would walk with Jesus? You would be drilling them with questions, wouldn't you? You want to know everything about the life of Jesus. So hospitality, it's not just handing over the keys to the garage. It's not just having an extra room in the house. It's ground zero for where faith and life are shared, are experienced. Now, there are those among you who recognize that Christian love and faith can't be separated from sharing your homes and sharing lives. And you're a challenge and you're an inspiration to me. I find there's a few families in the church and and their names are on the tip of my tongue who have a great sense of what hospitality is and who struggle at the fact that they can't be sharing hospitality in the same way during this, this pandemic time. Well, I'm encouraged by the fact that they, of course, will go back to having that same openness with everybody in the same way when it's the right time. But there's a worry that some of us will get closer to isolation and making that our default setting, our way of life. Now, of course, openness can be abused. Hospitality can be abused. In fact, we know that it was abused in that time. And we know it can be today. There's actually an early Christian document called the Didache where it talks about welcoming every apostle, just meant meeting someone sent, a teacher or a preacher in this case, Um, welcome everyone as though you were welcoming the Lord. But he must not stay more than one day unless absolutely necessary. If he stays more than three days, he's a false prophet. Now that escalated pretty quickly. It says, on departing, he must not accept anything but enough food to get him to his next lodging. If he asks for money, let's escalate again. He's a false prophet. People were abusing it. There were wolves in sheep's clothing. People were spending time. They were crashing on the couch. They had no other place to stay, and they were walking away with money in their pocket. What made the difference back then, as it does today, is another word I want to introduce, the the, the term witness. Take Demetrius in this same letter, verse 12. He's a man who probably was the one bringing this letter to Gaius, himself 
one of those traveling missionaries who was going to be staying at the house of Gaius. Demetrius gets this threefold witness. Read verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Even truth itself is showing up as a witness at his court appointment. That's, that's an incredible statement to make. Like Demetrius, Christians would arrive bearing letters witnessing to each other's character. They would share about each other even in front of the congregation, as you see these traveling missionaries did when it came to Gaius. In fact, the only thing we know about Gaius, and it seems John knows about Gaius, is based on that testimony, based on the fact that people said, who were traveling missionaries came back to the church that John was in and said, I need a bit of time up front. I want to talk to you about this guy, Gaius, what he did for us, how he took care of us. Now, the brothers were so thankful that they testified, and they weren't just saying, uh, we stayed at the house of a super nice, really warm guy, best cheesecake you'll ever taste. And they sat down. That's, that's not what was being said here. Listen to what they say in verse, what is said in verse 3. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He says something nearly identical in 2 John. Truth is this powerful theme that you see throughout the books of John. In fact, it's, uh, this word group occurs uh, in John more than uh, half the amount of times that you see it in the entire New Testament. He's constantly using it. It's a powerful theme. But for him, love and truth aren't things you can pull apart. They're not, they don't get to be separated. They're conjoined. They're like two sides of one coin. At the very start of this letter, he says, he calls him the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. It wasn't just an abstract idea that he was using. Truth for John had both the Old Testament sense of what is reliable, firm, faithful, and the Greek sense of something that matches ultimate reality, that being Jesus, it was always linked to Jesus. To be in the truth was to be in Jesus, to have been baptized into him, to have been immersed in the Lord. As someone who is not a disciple of Jesus, if you're listening, your love may well be real, but you've maybe failed to recognize the true source of it. Your love was based or is based possibly on a false premise. Definitely, if it isn't clothed in God's grace and mercy, if it isn't founded on Jesus as a cornerstone. It's based on a misunderstanding about what love is and where it comes from. To be in the truth was to live in the truth, to live in the light of God's love, to show God's love. You can't surgically separate them. Our witness about each other can't hide one side of the coin. What a great guy. Love him so much so sweet, takes care of me, and totally forget about the other side of the coin, whether or not they are walking in the truth. Anyone who thinks they can have love while they more or less let go of truth has failed to see the true nature of either one of them. So you begin to see that bearing witness was a huge thing in the time of the early church, as it should be today. That's been a big thing in other times of history, in other points of history as well. 
In Chile in the 1980s, if someone bore witness about you to the government, you were likely to disappear, maybe never to be seen again. Bearing witness is often a negative thing, and it's often treated, even in the church, as a negative thing. And that's a problem. And the Old Testament was similarly often used in a negative sense. Witness bearing was something that you did when there was a crime. One of the Ten Commandments is to not bear false witness. Now, these are all important, but we see that there's a transformation. There's a need for positive witness in the New Testament. It's a little surprising that it takes on such a positive role in the New Testament, but it's ultimately because of Jesus. As with all things, his coming redeems what it means to bear witness. When Jesus came, he died, was resurrected. The idea of being a witness to him and to the good news became fundamental to what it was to be a Christian. When Judas died, there was one requirement for selecting a new apostle to replace him. And that was somebody had to have been there, to have seen that, to have been a witness to the life and ministry of Jesus. They had to have seen him gather in the children, walk on water, heal the leper. They had to say, I was there, I saw it with my own eyes, and I can bear witness to it. Both Luke and John have a a special emphasis on witness. Luke talks about eyewitnesses of Jesus who'd seen him with their own eyes. John isn't cagey about why he wrote his gospel. It wasn't a mystery. He wrote it to bear witness to Jesus. The apostles and early disciples were so committed to witness that every once in a while, maybe John and uh, Peter, they'd show up in a situation which was pretty much a courtroom setting. They were dragged as defendants before the Jewish council or the Roman leaders. They were defendants. They'd been preaching about a criminal, Jesus, and that was a problem. They're defendants. It's like they didn't get the memo. They started to act like they were witnesses instead of defendants. They weren't defending themselves. They were bearing witness to something positive, to Jesus. They turned the whole court on its head. They messed the whole thing up. Oh, they knew what they were doing. In fact, they seemed to view it as an opportunity, not a setback, a chance to speak about Jesus. You get the impression that they were just waiting to be arrested. And as witnessing to Jesus became a way of life, so witnessing to Christ's work in each other became a way of life. That's what John's talking about when he says in verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. He's testifying, he's testifying to the fact that Gaius is in Christ, that he walks in the truth, that he's immersed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Like a a deep backbone running through the whole Testament, this idea of witnessing Jesus and witnessing to Jesus runs. And in the coming years, it would come to be associated with suffering for the bearing that witness. Now, there was a, when, in one of the churches I was in, there was a, a tradition, and I think it was, it was a very good tradition, of witnessing to one another. At your birthday party, your friends would sit you down in front of everyone, and they would bear witness to you. To your, they, they'd tell stories about you, to show your character, to show transformation through the Spirit in your life. They would encourage. 
Now, that was usually the setting where I got to practice uh, my deer-in-the-headlights look. But some people really thrived on it. I got to say, I, I found it a little awkward. But it was a source of deep encouragement that that was a part of our culture as a church, that sharing and, and, and helping each other to thrive through encouragement, through bearing witness, was a part of who we were. If we walk in Christ, we are a witness. The New Testament word is martyr. And so you won't always, it won't always go well when you bear witness. Witnesses to Christ's sanctifying work in our brothers and sisters. That's what we are. And the one rule for being a witness is you need to speak up. That's what being a witness is. You need to speak up. Creating a culture of bearing witness to one another demands that. Now, Diotrephes. We're getting close to the end, but we need to talk about Diotrephes. Diotrephes, well, he's someone who's interested in, in truth, in welcome, and in witness, has withered on the vine. Verse 9, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Now, Diotrephes is as rare a name in that time as Gaius or Caius is a common name. Sad to say, that's not true for their respective characters. His door is closed to other Christians. He's nailing shut the other doors of the church. The sap cannot flow through this branch. He's willing to talk wicked nonsense, empty words, bear false witness to tear down, not to lift up. Truth is not what's important. Ruling the roost is what's important. Him having a sense of authority, him having a sense of importance in his immediate environment, that's what's important. The root of all of this is found in one word that's used in this verse. Philoprotul, lover of being first, lover of distinction, lover of first place. Wanting to be the loudest, most distinctive, smartest, the most respected in the room. Whether you're like Diotrephes and a lover of being first, or you're like someone who is on the opposite side of the scale. You tend to fade into the background on everything. You never stand up to be counted when it's important, when you need to bear witness for Jesus. Whether you're either one of those, chances are you're likely to talk about that feature of yourself or your character or your nature rather than as being sin, more as being just your character, the way you're made. If you're confronted about it, that might be your response. You may even tag God. Well, I was made this way. Our sanctification, our becoming more and more Christ-like, should also be a slow recognition that some of the things we call our, char our character are more like sin that has become so embraced, so ingrained, so much a part of us, that we can't even picture ourselves without it. Yet it never stopped being a sin. Diotrephes is what happens when we bottle it up, when we're no longer open to the flow or involvement of others in our little sphere, the area of influence and control we're so comfortable with, the one we're so ultimately insecure about losing. God's kingdom always comes at the expense 
God's kingdom coming always comes at the expense of our kingdom going. That's the trade-off. Now, I realize that this is talking a lot about open front doors. And we're in a time when we should be closing front, back doors, windows, all the rest of it. I realize that. This is a time of pandemic. This is a time where there has to be a concern for safety, where, there's an imp where it's important to realize that some of your decisions can have an impact on the health of others. But there is a danger, something I alluded to before, there is a danger that people at the edges of the community who are not connected with many people will start to see this isolation as a way of life. That there are people who will take this isolation and run with it well beyond the need. And so this is a reminder that the lifeblood of the church, whether it's because we're showing up in each other's living rooms or backyards, or we're just in touch with each other in many different ways, that's a part of the flow of the lifeblood, of the grace and of the mercy that is a part of our church and central to our church. That's what it is to be the vine. And we're all very different branches on the vine. We come to the Christ, our Christian lives with different strengths, with different weaknesses. Are we open to the sap of grace flowing through us or not? Can we bear witness to Christ in each other, to transformations that only the Spirit can enact? The church at its best is a vine where no one has their little kingdom, their little closed-off section, their little sphere of influence. It's a place where the constant flow of Christians to and through each other's lives doesn't allow that. What it does is wash those borders away. And just as John wished for Gaius, that's when we head out onto the right path. That's when we all thrive in Christ. Amen?